Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Victoire Cotevina Reynal, the CEO of the Gloria app. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's games. That's grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available, so check that out. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Victoire Cojavina Reynal in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Another busy weekend. Let's get to it. Yeah, lots to talk about. But let's start with another Liverpool City showdown, this time in the FA Cup semifinals on Saturday. I know you're a City fan, Witty. Liverpool three, City two, Zach Steffen... Where do we start? Oh, oh and honestly, uh, I'm I'm gonna have to mea culpa here because uh, during the great U.S. goalkeeper debate of September 2021, um, I, I was uh, firmly in Team Stefan uh, just because I thought that it was a little hyperbolic and a little too based on one metric, uh, the desire for Matt Turner to play ahead of Zach Stefan. I thought Zach Stefan offered a lot, but I, I think in in retrospect, I was always kind of talking myself into it, right? I was talking myself into Zach Steffen's pedigree, uh, playing for Manchester City, playing every day under Pep Guardiola, playing every day in training uh, with these guys. But the word that I kept using there was playing. He's not playing. And so I think you see a lack of sharpness. However, I think that's probably been over-discussed as it relates to the particular howler he made against Liverpool. You cannot play for 10 years and not make the howler you make against Liverpool. It, it seemed as though he just didn't register that Sadio Mane could come on to him quickly, which he's very quick. That seems that, that seems to be a miscalculation. And I really thought it was interesting for the remainder of that game how much the Liverpool fans recognized almost a wounded dog there. Like, we're just going to go after him every time he has the ball. Whoa! And, like, trying to, like, really pack on the pressure on Zach Steffen. And I really felt bad for him. I felt bad for him. And that's a moment that's probably going to take some time to live down. And the question is, where is he going to live it down? Is he going to be with the national team when they reconvene in May at the end of the club season? And is he going to make up for this at the World Cup as the number one? Because it completely reopens the conversation about the number one goalkeeping situation. And frankly, introduces a crisis that I didn't really feel in qualifying, right? Like, even when Zach Steffen makes the mistake against Costa Rica and Columbus, I didn't feel like, all right, well, the U.S. has a goalkeeping problem. Well, now it seems like they do, because... He's not playing. Matt Turner hasn't played for a while and is on the brink of not playing in Arsenal. And now you start, oh, is Ethan Horvath playing? No, he's not playing. What's the option after that? And it might be a 17-year-old in Chicago. Uh, So I think it it opened up all kinds of conversations about what's going on with the U.S. goalkeeping position. There's so much to talk about here about just this one moment in a very big game. Now, if this this happens in a non- like biggest game in the world on the weekend yeah. with huge stakes, then maybe it's a different discussion or a slightly different discussion. But this happened in an enormous game that everyone on the planet was watching. For the second straight and, year. Right. And, and so 
it really does raise a lot of different questions that are actually very interesting depending on how you want to look at it. Even if you're not a U.S. person, like the question of should you really start your backup goalkeeper in a game this big? Like, and that's what Pep Guardiola did last year. And I, I, I'm starting to think like, maybe that's not a great idea. And I realize Claudio Bravo had plenty of issues at city as the backup goalkeeper who got played in, um, in cup games. And, and so this is an interesting question. I think I've changed my point of view on it. Uh, I, I've, I've seen too many mistakes by the backup goalkeeper in a big game. Um, I feel on a, human perspective very badly for Zach Steffen. And I realize this is part of being a goalkeeper in this sport, that you're going to have situations like this. And my first thought, one of them was to Loris Karius in the 2018 Men's Champions League final for Liverpool. And Granted, he had like a concussion they later found in that game caused by Sergio Ramos, which is another thing we, you know, road we could go down. But like really bad plays by a goalkeeper in a really big game with the whole world watching. And that was the last time Loris Karius ever played for Liverpool. And so am I thinking a little bit about Zach Steffen? Is that the last time he ever plays for City? Is that possible? I guess it could be. You just don't know. Um, I also think it's in his interest to look for a loan in the fall, in the summer, so that if he wants to actually be the starter for the U.S. at the World Cup, I, I feel like he needs to be playing all the time. But I feel the same way about Matt Turner. And so it really does raise a big question. And I find it crazy that on April 17th, 2022, as you and I are recording this, I have less of an idea of who the starting U.S. goalkeeper should be than before, than really in a really long time. I have less of an idea who should be the starting number nine for the U.S. than I have in a really long time. I thought we were supposed to have answers by now, or at least something closer to an answer. Well, and the remarkable thing is that if Zach Steffen merely went to the rest of the season without playing we wouldn't be having these questions. It's merely by stepping onto the field that the questions get invited because if he's the back, I mean, he's been the backup who hasn't played for a long time and Greg Berhalter still wants to pick him as his number one. So he very clearly, you know, didn't really care that Zach Steffen's not playing a ton in the league or not playing a ton for Manchester City and then he steps out there, makes a mistake like this and maybe, you know, sometimes a national team manager, it's, it's kind of an arm around the shoulder and be like, hey, you be yourself, be comfortable here, um, but you know makes a huge mistake coming off his line in the semifinal against Chelsea last year. Does that, and you could also criticize him for the third goal that went in. It was kind of, a, I mean, it was an incredibly well-struck ball, um, I believe, by Sadio Mane once more. Um, but tailing away no from him, I have no issues on that one. I, I, you know, I think there are some, there's, there's some, there's, there's some questions about his positioning. There's, there's questions about where the goal comes from. But I mean, it, it's only in the context of not making the mistake in the second one. Um, but you're right. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem now, this number one position going forward. And, it, you know, it's, it's really difficult now heading towards, uh, you know, a series of games that aren't really that important, um, really between now and the start of the World Cup, that these questions probably won't really be answered. It only really gets answered if someone, like with the striker position, gets in a run of form and starts scoring goals or gets on a run of form and starts keeping clean sheets. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I know on the on the TV broadcast they were critical of of Stefan's positioning on the on the third goal by Mane as well. I just thought that was an amazing strike by mm-hmm. Mane, great finish. And we've gotten to a point where I think just because you get beat near post doesn't necessarily mean automatically that your positioning was bad. Sometimes a guy makes a great play, um, but. You know, Stefan made mistakes in Costa Rica as well uh, in the last qualifier for the U.S. the night they qualified. So um, it's interesting because recently I spoke to Stefan and and wrote about that on Friday ahead of this game. And so that's where sort of the human element comes in. And you hope that he's able to uh, to rebound. You know, he he tweeted or I think posted some stuff on Sunday about just needing to fight through it. You know, he's this isn't his first rodeo. It's probably his the biggest, most high-profile mistake he's made. But, like, he's 26 years old. But he now, he now knows he needs to perform and be, and be performing regularly and well. There's two other bits of context that I kind of want to add to this. One is, in some ways, the second City-Liverpool match of the year, the one uh, a weekend ago, figures here because Ederson has almost the exact same moment on the goal line and manages through, like, you know, heart and mouth moment, plays out of the trouble. And in some ways, it's like, I think Stefan might approach the position as, I need to replicate what Ederson does, and be that calm under that kind of pressure. And really, every time he touches the ball, there's just this air of like, all right, I'm calm, I'm calm, I'm calm, I'm not going to press, I'm not going to, you know, hit a ball quickly. But I do think the Ederson context plays here. And like, Pep Guardiola wants goalkeepers to play a certain way. Does that work for everyone? Does that work in every context? And I think that's why he sometimes struggles to find goalkeepers and why they don't necessarily work in other contexts. But the other, uh, I think, thing that's noteworthy here is that Zach Steffen signed a contract extension during this season. He's a Manchester City player through 2025. So you don't know if, you know, that's a sellable situation, right? Like, you don't know if he can, you know, find a move to another club. You don't know if Man like, Man City don't want, don't want to approach the beginning of next season without a backup. Like, they don't want to bring in an older player or something like what they do with Scott Carson as their third goalkeeper, you know, somebody who's a backup somewhere else. Like, you don't want, I, I think Pep Guardiola likes having a goalkeeper of the quality of Stefan in his squad, but... You know, I, I think it's a real tough thing for Stefan to handle this offseason. I also noticed Matt Turner tweeting on Sunday night video of himself out training again, that he's out doing full training now at this point. He's been out mm. for a little while. Yeah. Um, curious to see how much time he may even be able to get for the revolution before he has to join Arsenal, I assume July 1st. So um, that's an interesting storyline to follow. And also, we're going to talk about Stefan Fry later with uh, CCL and Seattle advancing to the final. And he's been terrific lately. And I know he's an older keeper in his mid-30s, but he is eligible to play for the United States. And so this discussion now that's been thrown open, you're going to hear names like Stefan Fry thrown out there. And I guess it's just going to uh, be a, a lingering question until Greg Berhalter announces who's going to be coming in for these June games uh, for the U.S. And, and and we'll see what he ends up deciding to do. We do know that Greg Berhalter wants to get his best possible U.S. team together because he doesn't have that many games with these guys before the World Cup and wants to make use of it as much as possible, even for lightly regarded opponents in the Nations League. Um, I want to ask you about something that came up over the weekend as well. And this started probably, at least for me, with the U.S. men's national team goalkeeper situation. But it's sort of extended 
to the rest of the team. If if you pick the likely starting 11 for the U.S. at the World Cup, how many of those guys are actually first choice starters with their European clubs right now? And I realize there's some injuries, obviously. Weston McKenney is probably a first choice starter for Juventus, but he's out for a while. Aronson's hurt. Moose is hurt. Dest is not fully fit yet. Um, but, you know, Tyler Adams started this weekend, but hasn't been, you know, most of the time for Leipzig as they've gotten a rebound. Christian Pulisic is not really a first choice starter the majority of the time for Chelsea. How concerning is that? Tim Weah is not a first choice starter for Lille. You know, Reina's hurt. I, like, I, I realize I, I want to put this in the proper context. This isn't time to panic. It's not a crisis. I know that people want to be in panic and crisis mode all the time. But is this a real concern? It's only a concern if you think that or if you entered the, the conversation thinking that the U.S. is a top 10 team in the world. Now, I, I do think that like the context of where these guys are in their careers, if they applied to any other nation, like let's say the English team had guys of the pedigree of where the U.S. players are now. They think like, oh, wow, we, we, have a, we have a ways to go here. But because the U.S. has not achieved on a European club level like this, we're really excited about it. It's accelerated timelines for the United States. It's Weston McKinney at Juventus. And yes, he does play a lot there. And I think Juve miss him a great deal if you look at their recent results. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Yunus Musa is, not, is a player for the future in big national teams. He's not a player that would be starting every game and would be relied upon already, right? He's he's going through his progression at Valencia. He's on his way, but he's not there yet. And so, like that's why I've always been kind of a bit lukewarm when like you look at the World Cup. I'm like I'm not necessarily thinking they have to get out of the group or they're going to beat Iran and they're going to beat the European playoff winners because if you looked at the talent level in a broader context, it's on its way, but it's not there yet. And so I think that if the U.S. are to achieve what they want to at the World Cup, you would need those players to play a level above where they're at. Now, Pulisic, we know, can certainly get to that level. And I actually think it's funny because I think if we had this conversation two weeks ago, Christian Pulisic is one of the relied-upon forwards for Chelsea, but all of a sudden, Timo Werner has emerged and has, I think, played really well in these last few games for Chelsea. He's displaced uh, Christian Pulisic. Mason Mount has, has risen to a, a to a really good level. He's you know got an incredible number of goal contributions this season. So, like, there is a context for these conversations, but I always sort of thought that the U.S. player if you look at it in the context of big national teams, is still very much in a development stage. And I think, you know, they're probably at about where they should be if you look at their performances on the field that we've seen so far when the group is together. No, and I think that is all totally fair. It's just interesting to me. And I realize right now there happen to be several injuries. And these guys are injury prone, by the way, at a young yeah. age, which isn't great. Um, that right now, the likely U.S. starting eleven. Of that 11, only Jedi Robinson, and I'm finally comfortable saying Jedi Robinson, so he's <laughs> going to probably request that we stop, <laughs> that he is the only one of that likely U.S. starting 11 right now who is a first-choice player for his team. Now, Matt Doyle chimed in and was like, well, Dest, when he's fully fit, is at Barcelona, and that may be the case. Um May not, but um, I think he, I think he's Anthony, a half a season away of working with Xavi to get there because I think for the moment, 
Like, I think Chavi likes having the trusted hand of Danny Elvis out there to help run his system. But, like, even Anthony Robinson, Jedi Robinson, is hasn't started all of Fulham's games recently. Uh, you know, it looks like they're going to get promoted, and that's a good thing. And I kind of personally would like to see Zach Steffen go on loan to Fulham next season, hmm. uh, where he can play with U.S. players like Jedi Robinson and Tim Ream. Um, and yet... I don't know. It, it just I, I, I didn't actually take the time to look into it that much. Most of the players who are either sort of likely or borderline to make the U.S. World Cup roster that are actually starting for their European club teams right now are players that are borderline, you know, like a Reggie Cannon or a Luca Della Torre or a Jordan Peefock. And these guys aren't going to be starters, most likely, at least for the U.S. team, unless there are injuries. So, um it's just interesting to me. I realize that there's several players that are in MLS that are including the the likely central defense starters uh, for the U.S. As of right now, Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman, even though I think Chris Richards is going to make a, a case for that uh, in the next few months. But um, I don't know. Just thought it was interesting. Um, I do want to ask you, because I know you broadcast Miami's upset of the Seattle Sounders over the weekend Red hot Miami, I should say. <laughs> um, <laughs> CCL, you've got the Seattle Sounders in the final, going to be a two-legged final against Pumas, which had a great comeback not that long ago against New England Revolution, upset Cruz Azul in the semifinals. And are you like me in feeling pretty, pretty good about the chances of finally seeing an MLS team win the CONCACAF Champions League and punch a ticket to the FIFA Club World Cup. The only problem with feeling that way in the CONCACAF Champions League is that it usually comes back to bite you. However, uh, when when I was preparing for the Inter-Miami game, I, 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 I talked to some people, including Keith Costigan, who covers, uh, who's their TV voice. He's like, I think they're going to take the Miami game seriously. And then they made 10 changes. So, but when you look at names on a sheet, what that team is, that front six is amazing. And like you can yeah. make a legit argument that Seattle are a more talented team than Pumas. They host the second leg. The Mexican press are calling them the favorites. And I wonder if that's like kind of a mind games thing. But it also might just be a legitimate analysis that Seattle are better than Pumas. And you would never have said that, you know, heading into a big Liga MX MLS encounter really ever. So, yeah, I think Seattle certainly have the weight of expectation. They're going to have to figure out what their squad rotation situation is between now and then. They have another league game next weekend before uh, they travel to Mexico City for the first leg. And I'm really excited for this just because I think that Seattle have the talent level. They are the better team. Stefan Fry turned in an amazing goalkeeping performance on Wednesday night against New York City. However, that goalkeeping performance was necessitated by, I thought, at times a very leaky defense. They're playing a guy who was a second-round draft pick as their regular at center back because they're without Yaimar Gomez-Andrade, who's one of the best center backs in MLS, So in, in Jackson Reagan. So I, I do think that there are some holes there, and MLS just doesn't have the history in the competition for you to have confidence. However, when you look at Joao Paulo, Albert Rusnak, Nico Lodeiro, Raul Ruiz Diaz, uh, Jordan Morris, Christian Roldan as the front six, you're like, wow, this is a talented MLS team. And I think that they have every chance to go and win it. No, I'm really excited about the whole thing. And, you know, I, I go back a long ways watching CCL and MLS teams. I can remember 
back in the early 2000s and it was still in the tournament format where you got like eight teams together in, in a one-off tournament and it was in las vegas at like sam boyd stadium and <laughs> i thought the chicago fire was terrific and had a great chance of winning and was really disappointed when they didn't um you know like this stuff matters and there's a real history here and i you know mls has had so much failure over the years that for as a league i think it's just really important and i realize the jinx potential is especially high this time just because it looks like seattle has a really good chance to win and we've seen failures before so i like the fact that seattle actually has the second leg they earned that if it had been cruz azul cruz azul would have hosted uh the second leg and so that's a setup for just a really cool moment. I think they've already sold out the lower bowl in Seattle tickets-wise for this game. And I'm thinking of going out there. We'll see what happens in the opening leg. But that might be a fun story for me to cover for GrantWall.com because it would be historic and, uh, and just pretty cool. By the way, sidelight here. I was searching online over the weekend. You know the whole Rob Lowe meme wearing the NFL hat? Yes. It just says NFL on the front. <laughs> I, I wanted to see if online there was a hat that just had a CONCACAF logo Ooh. on the front of it. And my friend, I found one. So <laughs> for some reason, somebody out there has put this hat out there. I don't even think, I think it's a knockoff. I don't think CONCACAF did it officially. Because mm. like on the CONCACAF site... Like, this is how my life has sunk. I'm sitting here over the weekend doing Google searches for CONCACAF store and, and trying to find out if they actually have CONCACAF hats that just say CONCACAF on the front. And they don't on the official CONCACAF store. So, but like one exists and I ordered it, but it was like one of these sort of shady operations that I think there's probably a 50% chance that the hat actually gets delivered to my residence. <laughs> But when it does, I'm really excited to wear it. I am based in Miami, so uh, there there are some CONCACAF offices down here. I can investigate and see if maybe there's a CONCACAF hat, then maybe I can FedEx it to you. Um, I honestly thought where you were going with that was that you were going to show up to cover this with an MLS hat on. Like you were like you were gonna be like representing the you know like your your interest in MLS winning it. Uh, I'm I'm struggling to find one, although it seems like there's an adjustable one from like the with the old logo on it. That's eight dollars. The one I ordered is the old Concacaf logo, which oh, I yeah. actually kind of like even more. Yeah. So I'm looking uh, at I'm, look, of... I'm looking at this old logo MLS hat. So maybe... that's not. Yeah, you're showing it to me right now. That's not what like. So actually, this is what's interesting. At the MLS Cup final in Portland. At the game, I ran into Don Garber, the MLS commissioner, right before the game, and he's wearing a hat, like a Rob Lowe hat, with like the MLS logo on the front of it. And I said to Don Garber, hey, you're like Rob Lowe. And like he had no knowledge of the meme <laughs> and therefore no clue of what I was talking about and like just kind of like stared at me. <laughs> and in that moment, I had to decide... Do I take the time to explain the whole drawn-out story of Rob Lowe and the NFL hat meme? Yeah. And I sort of got 20 seconds into it, and then Chris Wondolowski came out of nowhere and, and walked up, and Don like said hello to Chris Wondolowski, and thankfully ended mercifully <laughs> <laughs> this discussion I had gotten us into. 
Now, I actually, Rob Lowe told the story on a Lebetard and Friends property on South Beach Sessions uh, in which he was basically handed a hat because he was going to uh, the game to promote some Fox show that he was on. Now, I actually went to the Super Bowl this past year. We potted from the Super Bowl, and I went into the store that they had in the convention center, and I said, do you have the Rob Lowe hat? And they looked at me much in the same way that Don Garber looked at you. But eventually there was one bloke who was like, I think I know what you're talking about. And he walked me to that hat. I am a proud possessor of an, a black NFL logo hat. I have it in my closet. I have not worn it since. We were going to do a bit where on the Monday morning after the Super Bowl, we all wore it, but I forgot to do it. And I hate hats. So uh, I, ha- I have this prop hat in my closet. I'm, I'm glad you do. <laughs> I'm hopeful, fingers crossed, that my CONCACAF hat comes. If it does, I will wear it soon, I promise. Probably during the CCL final, Mm. leg one or leg two. I also want to talk about our old friend, Matias Almeida, Mm. and say happy trails to Matias Almeida, soon to be former San Jose Earthquakes coach. We're recording this Sunday night. It's not official yet, but it's been reported now by our, our, our friends Tom Bogert, uh, and then also Jeff Carlisle, I think, at ESPN, uh, that Matias Almeida is done as the San Jose Earthquakes coach. They're the only team in the league that has yet to win a game this season. And I will say this. It's a little bit... It was always interesting following the San Jose Earthquakes under Matias Almeida. It was not always good soccer. In fact, sometimes it was truly terrible soccer. But the man marking was definitely different. The choices that Almeida would make with his lineups were iconoclastic is a nice (laughs) word and and yet I still couldn't look away and at least it was different like part of my issue with today's MLS is you've got 28 teams and growing and there's not a lot of variation sometimes between the teams and the San Jose Earthquakes under Almeida at least brought that. They were interesting to watch. And it, the glory days, I think, were the MLS's back tournament mm. when it was just absolutely crazy to watch a San Jose Earthquakes game in a kind of fun, chaotic way. Yeah, and that's what he brought to the league. I actually think uh, it's me and the guy who does the games for local TV for NBC Sports California that have probably done the most Matias Almeida games just because (laughs) of the number of times we had them on Univision SAP games. And yeah, they, they were always a bonkers watch. But then you'd watch them and you'd go, this is bonkers. This can't work. And even, like, in some ways... Their game this past weekend, which they drew, by the way, they've actually gotten like some surprise results. It came back from 3-1 down against Columbus, down to 10 men, and got a point at home. They haven't won a game yet, but they've still gotten some surprising results. But the goal that Hani Mukhtar scores to open the scoring is literally a 50-yard run down the middle of the field. Like, basically, even with the dot where they place the ball to start the game, he runs on a straight line from that dot and scores into the bottom corner. I remember Jordan Morris did something similar, running off the left wing and straight down the middle in like a 7-0 win for Seattle against San Jose. It it didn't work. I mean, it was kind of interesting in year one, but as, as the years wore on... It didn't work. He tried to bring some of his... I mean, a lot of his players were, you know, with him at Chivas, with him uh, in Argentina, with him here, with him there. Like, he tried to bring in some of his own guys. And, like, you know, Andy Rios, who they're paying, like, 900000 a year to, like, basically didn't score a goal, and he's a center forward. So, like, there are a lot of misses on the Almeida resume. 
you're right. It was interesting. He obviously has pedigree when you look at what he did with Chivas, but um, I, 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 it's been time. I think it's kind of been a little bit of an embarrassing episode as well when you consider kind of the will he, won't he, get, will he, won't he get fired? Does he want to get fired? Actively talking about the front office who maybe have a plan, um, but it clearly doesn't involve Almeida. And I'm kind of glad that this chapter is over if and when it finally is over. I do agree with you on that. And I would also say, I mean, anytime you're asking the question, is this coach trying to get himself fired or are the players trying to get their own coach fired? It's amusing, but it's not a good sign. It's no. actually a really bad sign. Yes. And, and there is a, a shelf life on that. And I do think that Almeida's brand, at least for me to some extent, has been changed and not in a good way like it's hard for me to imagine this guy having won titles as a coach he has mm -hmm. and so like when he signed with san jose i was like that's an amazing get i can't believe san jose got matias almeida and now i look at things differently and, and there were a lot of times over the last couple of years where almeida would like call out his own ownership and basically say that they weren't giving him money to get players but like like you said there were a lot of players that they he wanted that they spent money on who didn't perform. And so I, I I think it's time for this to be over. I am curious. You know, the Chivas job is open and he has a history there. And so it makes you wonder if there's any chance. But if I were Chivas, I don't know if I'd want to hire this Matias Almeida. Well, <laughs> you're, you're getting the same guy, right? You can't say that he's changed. It's just that it didn't work <laughs> in MLS. And I remember, did he come in at the same time? As uh, Guillermo Barroscalotto in in when we, when he went to the Galaxy, who's now I think the Paraguay manager, and there was like this run of like U.S. Or, uh, U.S. teams, MLS teams getting coaches with incredibly impressive pedigrees from abroad, and was like, wow, this league is heading into a new era where they're taking on coaches that have different pedigrees than they did before, and none of those guys really worked, and. I think it, it it does remind me a little bit of uh, an article that The Athletic wrote this week uh, with the Chicago owner, Joe Mansueto. He was basically arguing that the league needs to open up, open up spending rules so that it's not just focused on DPs. We get rid of the allocation money concept and teams are given a salary cap and they can use the money however they want to use the money. And I think that might be part of the reason why Almeida didn't work in San Jose. It's because you have to work in this very specific way. And I think a lot of coaches come from abroad and are like, what is this? Like, what? Like, I, I, right. I just need a new right back. Can you go get me one? No? Why not? Because it needs to be a domestic player who played in college last year. What? And I, I just think, like, those are things that, I mean, you look at the coaches that have worked in this league from abroad, they've bought into that. They've understood it. They realized what they have to do in order to get the most out of a team. But I think Almeida was kind of always bewildered by that and always kind of confused. And I wonder if at times the roster rules lead to maybe perhaps the standard of coaching not being able to rise in the league because a lot of imported coaches get frustrated. And look, there's plenty of great American coaches that are succeeding right now and they deserve their opportunities. But I also think every league needs a little bit of an imported idea. It needs some new blood and some new ideas and some new coaching tactics. And you, you just look at how the Premier League has grown since the best managers in the world started going there. Uh, I think MLS 
kind of needs to be more amenable to new ideas and not have coaches frustrated like Miguel Angel Ramirez for he's even coached a game in Charlotte because of the roster rules, because they haven't been able to get business done. I, I, I just hope that MLS makes it a little bit easier on imports not being so confused by the rules from the second they step through the door. Yeah, and I'm with you. That's a good persuasive argument you just made. I mean, I just find it fascinating that like, you know, Marcelo Gallardo, for example, the River Plate coach is often mentioned as somebody like who could have gone from there to Barcelona when Ronald Koeman got fired. And and people who follow the sport closely, including in South America, don't bat an eye at that. Maybe people in Europe do. I don't know. But if that's the case, I find it interesting that based on what Matias Almeida has achieved as a coach at one point in his career, he would have been viewed very similarly to the way Marcelo Gallardo is now viewed. And right now, not any of us are saying that Matias Almeida is going to go coach Barcelona. I guess what's interesting to me is, will it be easy for him to get a job in Mexico, whether it's with Chivas or some other club? And, and is MLS just viewed as some sort of total wild card <laughs> that like people are ready to write it off and say, yeah, that it's not just his fault for what happened here, but maybe the league's fault for what you're talking about. And it, honestly, like if we're talking about maybe a place where Almeida could have gone when his stock was higher, I actually think the English Championship might have been a place. Uh, when you look at, I mean, so yeah. Bielsa takes leads up and actually one of his top assistants, Carlos Corberan, uh, is taken over at Huddersfield and they're third in the championship right now. Maybe kind of like how uh, that league has taken on some of the the, the pressing acolytes like uh, Gerard Struber, who's now the coach of the New York Red Bulls, and Valerian Ishmael, who was the manager at Barnsley, took them to the playoffs. Like, there's a few of these really intense Red Bull pressing guys that are kind of in in fashion right now in England. Maybe you know the Bielsa acolytes would have been there as well. And so maybe Almeida could have gotten a chance, but now he's probably going to have to either be a national team manager of a South American nation or go back to Mexico or, or something like that. Or maybe some other MLS club is ready to take on a crazy new idea. But um, yeah, Almeida's stock very much dropped as a result of, uh, of this failure in San Jose. One more thing I want to talk about before we get to my interview with uh, Vicky Cochavino Reynal, uh, which is a good one that you should listen to, by the way. But um, and that is in the NWSL, they're still doing the Challenge Cup, uh, preseason tournament, not official games, but there's still a trophy. Uh, but really great entertainment on Sunday with Washington Spirit winning 3-1 to one at Gotham. Two goals for Trinity Rodman, who for me is the most exciting player in the league was by the end of last year she's really young she's got a, a really promising future and the fact though the entertaining side comes not just from the two goals that she scored in this game but that she scored them against on ashlyn harris the outspoken as well goalkeeper former u.s women's national team keeper world cup champion uh, and they had a Twitter beef that was a good Twitter beef, even in the moment that it was going on. So, like, for those who haven't seen it, this was March 26th. So, in the last month, Washington Spirit Twitter account showed a video of Rodman breaking the ankles, basically, of Allie Krieger, uh, who's married to Ashlyn Harris, is a fullback on Gotham. And Ashlyn Harris then tweets... Get us a professional field and then we can talk to the Washington <laughs> Spirit account. Until then, take your amateur shit back to your high school field. 
uh, <laughs> which is pretty good smack talk. <laughs> but then Trinity Rodman responds on Twitter, I didn't see anyone else falling like that. You can accept her ankles got broke. Big eyes emoji. To which... <laughs> to which... <laughs> McCall Zerboni of Gotham writes, stay in your lane, baby girl. Mm. And then Ashlyn Harris comes back and what did she tweet? Yeah, I, ha- I have it here. She says, oh my bad, one camp in and she's feeling confident, honey, with the kissing emoji. So one camp in with the U.S. women's national team. So all of that certainly made for a fun environment in this game where really terrific goals and Robin showing why she got the big contract just not long ago here, long-term deal, makes one of the highest paid players in the league. And the celebrations that Robin had afterward, kind of right in front of Ashlyn Harris. Ali Krieger didn't play today, by the way. That was a coach's decision, it looked like. Um, But like first-rate entertainment, let's get more of that. Well, yeah. Well, that's, I think, exactly the point, is that I I don't think... um, And maybe I think leagues will start to recognize it a bit more um, in the aftermath of Formula One suddenly becoming a massive sport here, (laughs) that storyline is a really important part of developing sports. You look at the big Premier League title races and Champions League races and relegation fights and Champions League knockout ties. It's drama and story built over time with incredible sport behind it. And I think these are the moments that I don't think soccer in this country produces enough of. And it requires a bit of conflict. And it requires some coaches going out in a post-game press conference and ripping their opposition. And I think that sometimes there's maybe a bit too much decorum. Like... As much as I kind of disagreed with the comments of uh, Fabian Herbers after um, he, the, the Chicago Fire played Inter Miami and he ripped Gonzalo Higuain on his podcast, it, kind of in the back of my head, I'm going, well, good. Like, next time the Chicago Fire and Inter Miami play, there'll be a bit of needle. Like, there's a storyline going into it. Like, these events need storylines, well told storylines that are accessible through the press. Now, this might be a little bit too niche uh, just because it happened in some Twitter mentions, um, but either way, I love it. I love the fact that Trinity Rodman backed herself and turned in two amazing goals. Like, they're well-struck, good goals at the end of good Washington spirit moves. So, um, I, I love this. And and may there be more. And may every time Gotham and Washington spirit play, it's a big occasion <laughs> because there's this backdrop behind it. We need more backdrop and more drama behind sports to sell them. Agreed 100%. And I don't think this is that niche. I mean, mm. I, I feel like, is it niche or niche? It's, it, I, I, think, I think both are sometimes correct. Too, you're too British. So that's, <laughs> I have a hard time knowing sometimes. But like, I, I just would say that like, I could see this being on PTI tomorrow. Mm. Why not? Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. Like, I, right, I agree. These, this is the kind of like thing that the NBA is really good at that gets hot takers going when you know Kevin Durant tweets back at critics or like today during the playoffs. I, I guarantee you in the A block tomorrow, Br- Brooklyn-Boston was a great game, but in the A block, Kyrie Irving giving a middle finger to a fan will make the A block of a lot of shows tomorrow. And we'll be talking about Kyrie Irving's behavior towards the Boston fans. I guarantee you we, like that will be discussed a lot. And those are the sorts of things that like drama gets attention. 
Like, it just does. Like, that's what, like, that's part of what sports and sports conversation is built on. And it, what, what gets you on these sorts of platforms that up grow and, and, and expose your league. Always a pleasure, Chris. Many thanks. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Victoire Codivina Reno. Our guest now is Victoire Codivina Reno. She's the Miami and London-based founder and CEO of Gloria, a soon-to-be-released soccer community app. She's also a UN ambassador for gender equality in football and a board member of WIST, a nonprofit for women in sports tech. She was at the stadium for the Barcelona women's team's recent record crowd of more than 91,000 fans. And the next day, Gloria announced a 10 million euro commitment for the naming rights of the Spanish Women's Pro League. Vicky, congratulations on that news and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I've been a, a big fan of this show for a long time. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have a lot to talk about here, but first off, I just want to ask, what was it like to be in the stadium for 91,000 fans at a Barcelona-Real Madrid Women's Champions League game? What did you see? What did you feel? Uh, it's very hard to put those feelings into words. Uh, I've been processing now for a week. Uh, it's, been, it's been a week and, and it's very, very hard. Um, I'll start by saying that I never thought this moment would come this fast, even though I was bullish about this moment happening. So that's the definitely the, the first thing I'll say. Um, Barcelona is also my team. Uh, so it felt even closer to home to, to see a team that I've been training for, for so many years on the men's side uh, do justice to the women's side of things. So, so that's the second thing. I've been in that same stadium, Camp Nou, cheering for Messi so loudly, and now I was there cheering for Alexia and 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 the incredible you know success that they've had so far. And hearing everyone else join me in that was uh, was an incredible experience. And then the last thing I'll say, even though I could speak about this for hours and hours, um, I've been having conversations with every taxi driver here in, in Barcelona about this incredible moment because they're, they're so used to having a very big team here, but it's always about the men and never about the women. Um, but the audience was very much a family-oriented audience. There was a lot of little girls. There was uh, a lot of mothers. Um, and it felt like they took that opportunity to show them what the future could look like for them. And to me, that's the most important thing that happened last Wednesday um, for every woman on this planet and, and men too that have mothers and daughters and wives um, it meant much more than just, you know, a crowded football game. It was a world in where women really are treated the same way as men. It, it really was a huge moment. And I was in Barcelona last month to report a story on their women's team, knowing that this was going to happen. And they're going to do it again for the semifinal. They already sold out in a very short amount of time, the tickets for that game against Wolfsburg in leg one. But I did want to get your perspective on like, what are the factors in your opinion about what's caused this change in Spain, in Barcelona, and obviously the success of their team, their women's team has to be part of that because they're the current European champion, their record is incredible and they play amazing soccer. But this team only became professionalized in 2015. 
And so a lot has happened in a short amount of time. What do you think has happened this year to cause this big change around attendance at these games? So, yeah, speaking specifically about Barcelona, I believe that the contrast in between the women's team and the men's team and the timing of everything that has happened um, has been a, a big factor as well in, you know, looking at the women's team with different eyes. Um, actually, Heineken did an incredible campaign here locally that I don't think anyone saw. Uh, but whoever is walking the streets of Barcelona that says, we congratulate Barcelona for making the semifinals of the Champions League. And in their whole message, they never mention it's the men's team or the women's team that just say Barcelona. And clearly, because Barcelona men's team didn't make it into the into anything, and then we're in the Champions League, then it it kind of uh, was a nice wink. But I do believe that that has had a lot to do. And then, even more specifically, I mean, the the rise of Alexia Puteas as the best food baller uh, in the world with all the awards that she won uh, across several you know competitions um, and as well as individual um, awards made her into a superstar um, I actually was invited to the birthday of one of the players and also was used as a celebration uh, for their win on what was it on Saturday last week uh, and after having been an agent for men um, and having seen how, you know, they treat male footballers and, you know, how they protect them from the press and how, like, whenever there's any types of parties is done in a very private way and all those things, I saw that they were doing the same with the women's uh, team, which was incredible to watch because to me that was, you know, yet another um, inflection point in, in not only, you know, the success of women's football and the specific success of teams, but as well as the footballers themselves. Um, and I do believe that, again, we're at the very beginning of all of this and it's just, from, there's no going back from here. So before we get into Gloria's commitment to the league, I wanted to just ask you straight up so we can make it clear for our listeners, what is Gloria? What is Gloria? Gloria is a vertical community for all football fans. It's a place that if you want to watch a game and you're alone, you can come and connect with other people that are like-minded to you, whether because they follow uh, your same team or because they love the same footballer and you have that in common. Um, and we're building technology and a product essentially that can foster that um, sense of belonging and, and sense of community. Um, so that's in short to what Gloria is, and we're gonna be launching very soon. So you all get uh, to do it, to to check it out on your own. And to be clear, this is for the women's game and the men's game, right? I said football very thoughtfully. <laughs> it is for both. It's it's one sport. Uh, it's just a lot of different people play it. And a lot of different people support it as well, because I think that's uh, that's another big piece that, that we're trying to solve for is that, you know, historically, offline communities of football have been very common. I mean, it's, it's just going to watch a game with your family and your friends, going to a sports bar, going to a stadium are, are um, very common offline behaviors. And then when the internet came along, 
football very organically started trying to find its place. Um, and it did build communities on pretty much any journalist platform that exists out there in terms of social media. So you'll find big Twitter football communities and big Instagram football communities and same on TikTok and Reddit and so many different platforms. And that's as well because of the scope of football fans. Like there's there's billions of them and you can see that online. But until now, we haven't had one company, one product that built thoughtfully and consciously for football alone and really verticalizing that specific community. Uh, and in the process of doing that, really understanding that football fans are literally in every single country in this world. Um, and they're both men and women and they're both young and, and, and older. Um, and that you have to think about this when you're building a product to make sure it's inclusive for everyone uh, from a branding standpoint uh, all the way to how the product is, is, is built and the functionalities it has to make it that inclusive and safe as well, obviously. So how did the announcement of Gloria's 10 million euro naming rights commitment in the Spanish league, this new Spanish women's league, how did that come about? It, I think it's it's a result of my many years in the sport and uh, being also in the right place at the right time. Um, I've been an advocate for women's football for a long time now. Uh, and I think it's been you know uh, an incredible journey so far. And I do know that my a big part of my mission in this life is is to help as much as I can this incredible you know new thing that is happening to all football fans right because it's probably the most exciting thing that has happened in the sport in the last 100 years for sure um and you know through uh, my involvement in the women's football and advocating for it and and having very loud opinions around it I built an incredible a network of like-minded colleagues and, and now I can call them friends. Uh, and this is what happened. Um, Spain, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, is set to have a new professional league here that is going to be independent from the federation, um, which means that there's also open room to have a new presidency, a new president, a new vice president, and a new structure that will essentially um, you know, inform the future of football in this country and um you know a couple of months ago two good friends of mine two lawyers one that worked directly with fifa and is also the founder of the first um congress around women and leadership in the sport uh, as well as an ex-board member of barcelona fc uh, that has also had an incredible um you know impact in what barcelona femini is today um, both called me and told me we're running for this presidency and we're going to be independent and these are our plans and uh, we want to we want to you know treat players differently we want to treat clubs differently we want to do you know all these things that sound very innovative obviously for from a football standpoint and from someone like myself that comes from men's side of things um and i immediately gave them my support um and i said you know i i am not spanish um so my endorsement won't mean much uh, but you know in the background i'm happy to do whatever you guys need and what do you need and, and uh one of the things that any project needs is is always capital uh, so I connected them to a few of our investors and one of them 
uh, Muse Capital and Afia Rasioli, who's been one of my earliest investors and advisors of Gloria, uh, pledged 40 million euros to them, uh, which is an incredible <laughs> amount of capital. And I think one of the smartest moves as well, just because it's such an, a good investment because of the growth of it and uh, obviously many other factors. Um, and through that relationship, uh, we ended up you know, speaking about what the league would look like um, and, you know, what the league would be named. And that's where it all started. Uh, St. Gloria being a great name for women's uh, league, of course. Um, and then was, I, I, you know, made the offer and I suggested that if they won, uh, then I would want to acquire the naming rights. And uh, I set the price. Uh, for almost 10 times what my predecessor, which is a gas company here in Spain, had, had done back in 2016. Um, and I still do believe that the price might be in a few years from now, something very low. <laughs> so, so this is really what happened. Uh, and it was, you know, something that I, we documented as much as we could because we knew it was historic. Um, and the most historic piece of it, which is what happened really behind closed doors, is that for the first time, I think, you had four women negotiating and sitting across the table from each other, doing deals in a, you know, historically men-dominated man, man space. Um, and I think that that's, that alone was already very exciting. No, it's very cool. Uh, and... The contingency for your commitment is that the two lawyers you're referring to would be running the league. How does how likely is that to happen? When will we find out? This is where we get into the politics of Spanish football that um, is very similar to Argentinian football. Uh, and that's why, you know, I kind of felt comfortable getting involved because I do understand the dynamics. Uh, but again, it is the Spanish dynamics and they need to do what they need to do to figure out uh, how is it, it's going to be run. Uh, they do need the endorsement of four of the 16 clubs to be in the running. Uh, and after that, there's going to be elections. Uh, the timelines are not very um, clear. Uh, and there's political reason behind that, which uh, which is not great, but we're doing as much as we can to help. And I do believe that it sends a very strong um, signal to the clubs that, you know, these women have already secured 50 million euros, essentially, without even winning uh, the league. And that's money that's all going to go back to the clubs, right? So, and to the development of, of the sport in this uh, in this country. So, um, it's so, to answer it short, is unclear. Uh, to when and how it's going to happen, but I am bullish that it will, uh, and that it will definitely mark a before and after, and uh, you know, women's football in Europe, uh, because I do believe that they have the chance to becoming the best women's football league in the world in a very short amount of, of time. Uh, and I'm saying this being an American person, so, <laughs> and working in the United States, but, but there's reasons for me to believe that. And I'm very happy that Gloria can be at this uh, inflection point and to support uh, brands. And I've been saying this for a long time. I just never thought my brand would be it. Um, but brands hold the power today um, because they bring the capital and then they can actually affect a lot more change they think 
Um, I mean, even look at the Nike and the Adidas of this world. Uh, until very recently, women were playing with men's kits. Uh, very recently, we're talking three years ago. Like uh, this was, uh, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, and, you know, by virtue of them investing into that, then women got the kits, and the necessary proper uh, equipment that they need to play a game at a professional level. So um, I tried to do my best from the brand standpoint and hopefully also inspire more. I'm, I'm waiting to hear an offer up. Someone tell me that they want to pay 15 million euros. So I know that you have Argentine roots, you have Greek roots, you are American, you were born in the US. Your mother is a sports agent. You were a sports agent in the past. When people ask you, what's your story? What do you tell them? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I will always say that I'm Greek Argentinian. I'm half half. I was born in the U.S. I do currently live in the U.S. as well and have for, for a few years. And um, football has become my common denominator in my life. Um, my father was an ambassador. We lived in 11 different cities, uh, moved a, a lot. Uh, I learned four languages as a consequence and was always the new girl, was always starting the first day at a new school. Uh, and all of that really affected how I developed uh, as a human being, obviously. And um, thankfully, um, my brother, when I was very young, we're speaking five, six years old, introduced me to football. Uh, he he used to be a hooligan, not anymore. Uh, now he's he, you know he has kids and <laughs> and is a professional <laughs> person, but used to be a hooligan and uh, had this enormous passion for football and didn't have a, a little brother. He had a little sister. So uh, I ended up, uh, as a consequence, going with him to the rowdiest part of, of football in South America and uh, in the stadium at Racing in Avellaneda in La Popular, which you probably know very well what it is. Yep. Uh, but for those that don't know, is is the place in the stadium. There's no seats <laughs> and there's literal metal structures called paravalancha to stop people from crashing into each other when there's a gold. Um, and my brother would put me in front of those metal structures um, to not be, essentially not lose my life. And I, I used to have this, and I think that still like at a very like physical level when there's goals, I still feel this like life or death kind of feeling inside of me where it's like, you don't know what's gonna happen. Um, but I did grow up, you know, from a very young age, being a very passionate football fan. Um, I never played the sport because my parents never thought that that was something that a little girl should do. Um, and I wish I was in the United States at that point, because I would have probably played soccer then, uh, but I didn't. And, and all of those things really informed my identity and who I am today. Uh, football saved my life when I was young. Uh, I was um, very bullied in school, unfortunately. And, and I was uh, going through my parents' divorce and through very tough moments in my life as a 12, 13, 14-year-old. And uh, football gave me that community. I Every time, every Sunday, I'd step in that stadium. You know, I'll see people that I've met before, men, mostly men, that uh, otherwise I would have never met. And we all had something... Uh, bigger to to celebrate or to worry about that was in our own lives but was this team racing that had 
a long history of losing. Um, so yeah, that's that's really my story. I'm I'm a passionate football fan that wants to bring that same feeling of uh, belonging, that same feeling of be- being seen by others through football and I'm using technology because that's the best vehicle that we have today. I've spent a fair amount of time with hardcore soccer fans, football fans in Argentina over the years, uh, going back to the 90s, traveled with Boca Juniors fans. I actually went to a Rossing game in 2001 and sat in oh. the Populares. When so they you, won. You might have been there? I that, don't know. Um, well, I mean, that, that, that was the year Rossing um, won the championship for the first time after 35 years. Yes. And I was actually there. I was. Yes. My, and I was 10 years old, by the way. So now you can, you can figure out that I'm a 30-year-old woman. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an incredible year for Racing. 35 years. Uh, we hadn't seen like, them lift the trophy. Uh, so, so I'm glad that, that that was the year that you won. But I, what I remember, and this was always the case in the Populares, is just how few women there were. And so you had to have been one of the only women in there, much less kids, young girls. Yes, uh, I yes. However, I will say that in Racing and some other stadiums in Argentina, there is a section of the audience in the bleachers that it's only for women. Oh, really? It's a okay. very small section, very small, on the left of uh, La Popular. So it's, it's not really like the nice seats or La Popular. It's somewhere in the middle. And there's only women there. So you'll see like a lot of the wives of the same, you know, men that are in La Popular or little girls. Um, but it was always, you know, by we're talking like a representative of 1% of the amount of people that were in that stadium. Um, and thankfully, I always remember looking at it. And I, I'm so thankful that my brother never thought that this, you know, that, that this was the place I should go hang out uh, because it wasn't as fun as where we were at. Um, I think that that and obviously my mother being the very strong person she is, my gender never felt like it was an issue in this <laughs> in this sport. Was it unusual in any way that your mom, as a woman, was a sports agent, a soccer agent? Like I didn't come across. I've I've never come across too many Argentine women who are sports agents in the past. <laughs> no. It was very un- unusual, um, especially when we started the agency together uh, about eight years ago now. Um, at that point, the only women representing players were women that were directly related to the player in question, right? Either they were their mother or their aunt or their wives. Uh, Wandanara with Icardi, one of the, the, you know, the most famous kind of women managing uh, players' career. Um, but two professional women that have decided to do this independently was unheard of. Actually, FIFA recognized us in 2018 as the first women to ever start a sports agency in the sport. Um, so it was not usual. It was not common. And for a long time, everyone made fun of us and kind of like laughed us out of the room in the sense that how do you think that a man is going to give you their careers? Um, and I think that what they hadn't seen at that point is that firstly, my mother was a wealth manager before she was a, um, an agent and she had worked with these players and, rep- and, and really managing their wealth. Uh, and I do believe that, you know, an athlete, most athletes in many sports, 
there is a trust component if they trust you with their money, which could be argued as one of the most sensitive things <laughs> to give it to someone else. Um, then they'll trust you with a lot more. And that's what happened. And, and really what the beginning of a Feral Star was, which is a few players that really trusted my mother and her negotiation skills um, after she did a lot of great stuff. I mean, she renegotiated the deals and got players two to $3 million more in their contracts um, in the MLS, which obviously these are numbers that in the MLS are, is, is makes a big difference. Um, and also understanding that there was this incredible opportunity to connect the Latin American talent to the MLS because a lot of these players wanted to come and play in the United States, but because the league is different and it's structured differently and more similar to other big American sports, the rest of the world was always, and this even until today, they're confused about what's go actually going on in the MLS and how things work and what is a salary cap and what is a you know a designated player and all these rules that also consistently change. Um, so I think that that's, that's really where she found the niche and was like, I'll be a cultural translator. And I've, you know, worked with both sides of, of the equation. Culturally, she was very comfortable in the United States as well as in South America. And, and that's really building a very specific path into football. Interesting. Just a couple more questions here. Appreciate you taking the time. Um, We've had on the show before as interview guests, Alexis Ohanian, Melissa Ortiz, and they obviously are, are connected to, to what you're doing. Could you share what they're doing with your stuff? I'm very proudly going to say that they're both my investors um, and uh, they've been supporting the, the Gloria project from its inception. Um, Alexis has led my my last two uh, fundraising rounds, um, and as I always like to remind him and others, uh, I was his uh, OG football investment before Angel CD, before Sorar, <laughs> um, and it was a virtue from him, you know, realizing that that women's football and football in general was this you know market that nobody was investing in, especially in Silicon Valley. Um, so, so yes, and it's honestly, I, I always said this, uh, he's pretty much the very best investor that we could have ever hoped for. Um, and he's someone that has done a lot of bets very early on, which has, you know, built the, the incredible career that he has today. Um, and it was incredible that it happened with us as well. Like he, he saw that football was, uh, was a good vertical to invest in. Also because of the audience, right? Like it the audience of football is larger, arguably, than the audience of music, for example, or if not at the same level. Mm. I mean, so so uh, at that point where he um, needed to have like a long view on things, and I think he did. Uh, and then Melissa, you know, is one of the few female investors that we have, and that's something I say with not, uh, not a lot of pride and actually... Um, sadness um, but she is someone that has built a career on social media and understands the power um, of, of a product like Gloria has been with us from the beginning so um, yes they are there there are two reasons why Gloria exists today by the way so not not minor you know the women's transfer market is becoming 
bigger as well as the sport grows, which I guess isn't all that surprising. But I remember at the end of the Women's World Cup in 2019, I did a lot of interviews and wrote a story just because I was curious to see what the market was for top women's club players in European leagues, different countries, how it compared to the United States. And the fact that we are starting to see transfer fees, significant ones in some cases, in the women's game. Where do you think we are on that right now? Where are we going with the women's transfer market? I've said this multiple times. Um, I do believe that women's football will be as big as men's football. And it's going to be le in less than 20 years. That's my, that's my vision on things and how bullish I am. Uh, but it's not that hard to imagine anymore when you're seeing everything that has been happening, especially in the last two weeks. Um, and, inter and obviously, as the sport grow, everything grows with it. And transfer fees will be one of those, um, you know, things that, that will, will become even bigger. And, and to me today, when I try to explain to others, uh, about this hockey stick growth that we're seeing, I usually um, will use a benchmark of salaries and how in the last three years alone, we're seeing like 100% increases in those numbers uh, where, you know, the average um, salary for a woman playing in Europe would be 30,000 euros per season. Uh, we're now having players that are making half a million uh, euros per season. And that is in the span of three years. Um, I will add to this something that is separate, but um, uh, Gloria has a very, very good community on Instagram. Uh, we have about almost, uh, I think already surpassed 350,000 followers on, on the platform. Um, and we are super th thoughtful about how we present women's content and how can, you know, we can get football fans interested in this product um and it's a big part of our content plans etc cetera, etc cetera. and one of the things that we started doing is uh rumor transfers uh or transfer rumors sorry yeah. uh, which is something that we've done historically for men quite a lot and there are posts that uh, actually get a lot of engagement and you know it's, it's kind of a special niche in football. A lot of people love it. It's not that niche. Um, and the other day, we posted our first uh, transfer rumor about a female player, PSG player going to, to Barcelona. And it got incredible engagement. Uh, so I think that you already can see from a very simplistic kind of view, right? But on Instagram and what content is getting people's attention. And this is, you know, one of the best strikers in the world going from an incredible team like PSG to another incredible team like Barcelona. <laughs> I'm looking forward to more of that. I've done a little bit of that myself from time to time just because there's interest in the women's game here in the U.S. And it keeps growing and growing. Mm -hmm. I guess one question I do have for you, though, is when you see how much the European women's club game is growing, can the NWSL here in the United States keep up with the growth that's happening in European women's football? I There's this saying in English, I'm going to butcher it. I'm sorry, guys. Just um, I'm going to say sorry from the beginning. Uh, when the rise, when the tide rises, the boat rises. What's the, yes, how, a rising tide lifts me. all boats. 
there you go. <laughs> so I do believe that that's really what's going to happen. So uh, as the European League experiences incredible growth, it's going to 100% um, you know, affect the growth uh, of the sport in the United States. Um, the United States, like the MLS, has a specific structure that is very uh, specific to the United States, which, in my uh, humble opinion, will cap the growth of any um, league here, uh, especially as we continue to see the development of, of the league where we'll have a second division and that will create very intense competitions and 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 all of that. Um and I, I've always been a bit, big advocate of working together and, and having this collaboration in between the United States and Europe and also the rest of the world and, and learning how we can keep growing uh, uh, the game. But even though we're seeing crazy numbers here in the U.S., it's happening as well. I mean, Angel City and San Diego Wave, two newbies, uh, uh, have already broken records of viewership on a friend, not a friendly match, but not even a league match, right? right the league right. hasn't even started. Um, Angel City has almost $40 million worth of sponsorship and they haven't played a game in the league. You know, you have a lot of these um, kind of uh, data points that are showing that it's there's enormous growth to to come from it uh and you know from a specific you know from someone that has worked i guess in the united states and in football for a long time uh i would love to see the nwsl kind of take the lead as well and and show the rest of the world where there's a women league that is much more um you know i i don't want to say successful because by the way like it doesn't take away one from the other like men and women can be successful at the same time uh, but, you know, showing uh, the world that this is a product, a property that people want to consume. And Americans historically have had a great, um, a great success uh, at commercializing sports assets. And this is uh, one other opportunity for sure. So that's, that's really my opinion. It's not, it's not going to be, a, it's not a competition. It really is not. Victoire Cojavina Reynal is the founder and CEO of Gloria, soon to be released soccer community app. Congratulations on everything you're doing. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Vicky Cojavina Reynal, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.